Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Ida Vok in London. I'm Emily Tampkin in Tel Aviv. It's Friday, the 1st of October. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. We have a real treat for World Review listeners this week. But before we get to the entree, a little appetizer. Ido, what in the world do you think will go down in history from the past week? I think the appointment of a former foreign minister... Fumio Kishida to lead the Liberal Democratic Party and therefore Japan as the new prime minister is uh, quite a big moment. He seems to be slightly more moderate than um, some of his predecessors and the outgoing prime minister Yoshihide Suga was only in, in post for a few months and Kishida beat his his competitors in it has to be said a somewhat more favorable environment than Suga came into in particular because the coronavirus pandemic is easing slightly in Japan and restrictions are being lifted whereas uh, Suga inherited a really quite difficult situation so potentially Kishida might have a slight easier hand dealt to him what is your moment of the week so this week world luminaries are gathered in Milan Italy for sort of pre UN Climate Conference or COP26 talks. So COP26 is in early November. It's the big climate conference. And this one was sort of the prelude. But there was also a Youth for Climate Summit. And Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish activist, was there. And she gave the speech. And she was just like, you know, build back better, blah, 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 greeting the economy, blah, 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 and was very dismissive of, of these talks and of the politicians' convenings. And the reason I raise this is that I, I don't think that she's necessarily wrong to be. I think that there is a lot of frustration, especially on the part of young people, that with all of these summits and all these convenings and all of this and that, that ultimately not, it's not that nothing's getting done, but what's getting done is not nearly enough given the existential climate moment that we find ourselves in. Okay, with that, so as promised, a treat. Ido, do you want to tell our good listeners what you did this week? So I'm in London because I was interviewing Michelle Barnier, who... British listeners and probably international listeners a bit less will know was the chief negotiator for the EU during the Brexit negotiations. So he essentially led the EU's negotiations with the UK as it dealt with the consequences of its vote to leave in 2016. And and so he was in that position from 2016 to 2020. And he's written a book uh, called My Secret Brexit Diary, which is uh, slightly inferior in my view to the French title, The Great Illusion. But anyway, charting his time as the as the EU's chief negotiator. And so he's here to, to to promote that book, but he's also very interestingly running for French president. And so I had the opportunity to sit down with him, um, talk about his book, talk about his time as the 
chief Brexit negotiator, talk about his views on French politics and why he's running for president. And you made a little bit of news in that interview, but or rather you set him up to make news in that interview. But I think for our listeners to understand that, we sort of need some context. So can you just sort of give us the the lay of the land, if you will, of the French presidential election? Sure. So the French political scene had seemed for quite a while to be quite settled. At the last election, so in 2017, the current French president, Emmanuel Macron, faced off in the second round where the top two candidates of the first round uh, face off with Marine Le Pen, the, the far-right leader, because um, they both came first in the first round. And it seemed for a very, very, very long time that that would just be replicated and that there weren't really going to be that many upsets and that uh, the outcome of that second round would probably be Macron winning again against Le Pen, even if quite possibly by a smaller margin. But in, in recent weeks, things really seem to have heated up because of the inclusion of a, although he's not declared, he's almost certain to declare um, a kind of far-right pundit called Eric Zemmour, who is profiled in this week's edition of the New Statesman. And just very quickly for, for listeners who aren't familiar, who is this this Zemmour figure? So Eric Zemmour is a very controversial polemicist, journalist, writer, who has for a very long time been a kind of fixture of the far right in in France. And um, he's written a number of books in which he kind of espouses very, very radical theories and uh, lines of thinking. Uh, For example, the the official view of history since 1995, which has been that France was complicit in the murder of Jews during the Holocaust, which took a very long time for France to accept, and it finally did. And he says, actually, no, that was wrong, and it wasn't France. He's a very well-known kind of provocateur. Yeah, he's got he's got convictions for racial hatred against black people, Arabs and Muslims. Yeah, and so for some months now, he's been kind of toying with the idea of running for president. And at this point, probably everyone thinks that he is going to, and he's going to do it at some point within the next few weeks. But uh, part of what's keeping the momentum going, I think, is that he hasn't yet said he's going to do it. And so he gets people talking about him without actually ever declaring. I'm slightly guilty of this myself because I asked Barnier about Zemmour when I didn't ask him really about any other competitors. And so it's this kind of media dynamic where the longer he keeps the suspense going, the more people talk about the suspense and therefore talk about him and he rises in the polls, which makes people talk about him more. But the important thing to note, I think, really, is that he has incredibly hard lines on immigration, on assimilation, on race, on anti-feminism, on uh, official views of history and so on. Most of our listeners will probably know who Marine Le Pen is and really Zimmer is on many issues much, much more radical than Marine Le Pen. He's really shaken things up. And in addition to that, there is lots of fracturation, both on the right and on the left. There are many, many candidates. It goes from um, on the left, the far left candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the current mayor of Paris, who many New Statesman readers probably have a bit of a soft spot for, and Hidalgo, this former socialist minister, Arnaud Montbourg, and a green candidate too. And on the right, you have the competition to gain the nomination of the centre-right party, so the Republicans, which Barnier is running for. And so you have Barnier running against uh, this guy, Xavier Bertrand, and also Valérie Pécresse, who are both presidents of different French regions for for the nomination of the centre-right party. Then you have Le Pen, then you have Zemmour, who is almost certainly going to declare in the next few weeks, and then certain other small parties. So so it's, it's a really incredibly fractured scene where 
superficially, Macron and Le Pen are still polling first, but I think Macron is on about 24, 25% and Le Pen is on something like 16%. So the picture could change very drastically with just a few percentage points either way. So it's really quite a lot more volatile than people thought uh, it was going to be. I mean, it seems from afar watching it like they're mostly circling around immigration as a political talking point. But what are the big issues of the campaign? Obviously, we're still several months out. But is it immigration or is it more complicated than that? Yeah, immigration is certainly a very big theme. The reason there is so much hype around Zemmour is that he really doesn't half-ass his positions on immigration. He has at least flirted with the theory of the Great Replacement, which is a white nationalist conspiracy theory basically holding that elites are intentionally replacing quote-unquote indigenous Europeans with immigration from basically the third world, so Africa, South Asia, the Middle East. He's flirted with that theory. He wants a complete moratorium on immigration, including foreign students, people joining their, their families, asylum seekers, and so on. And it's a bit of a contrast to the sort of quite common anti-immigration policies that a lot of candidates, especially on the right and also with Macron, what was long considered the centre, have taken where they take a hard line on immigration, but it's always quite nuanced. Whereas with Zimur, it's just full on. There is It's very draconian. There is no room for compromise whatsoever. Zimur is not the only reason that that's happened. So, for example, Michel Barnier is running on a platform of stopping all immigration from outside the EU for three to five years. And he wants a what he calls a constitutional shield against rulings of the EU's highest court, the European Court of Justice, which would allow basically France to ignore unfavorable rulings on migration by the ECJ and so kind of exempt itself from those rulings and prevent its actions being hindered, especially against migration. And it's not entirely to do with Zimur, but they're, they're really, especially on the right, also on the centre, as we've talked about with uh, with Macron before, Macron's taken quite a hard line on identity issues, on immigration issues, especially in the last couple of years. So there really does seem to be the sense among French politicians that the mood now is for, for, for quite a hard line on immigration and that uh, they need to kind of outcompete each other on, on harsh measures. Okay, so that's what listeners should keep their ears open for on the French presidential election. Before I turn it over to you and the former chief Brexit negotiator, is there anything else in particular that you want to flag for listeners before they listen in? Yeah, so I, I think my main takeaway from this interview was we didn't talk too much about contemporary politics. We did a bit, but not too much because uh, he didn't really want to because he wanted to talk about Brexit. And he's had quite a hard time in the in the media recently. So he was quite happy to not be grilled on his policies. But um, obviously his policies as a candidate for president are quite inescapable. And what struck me was, I just didn't really believe it. I just didn't really believe that the, the guy sitting in front of me was this kind of quite strong anti-immigration, almost populist who wants to limit the jurisdiction of the ECJ and have a complete moratorium on immigration and so on. It just didn't come across as sincere. And the reason that is, is because Barnier was a European bureaucrat for almost 10 years. He's He tried to be president of the European Commission, failed to Jean-Claude Juncker. And so he's he spent a very long time at the top of European politics. And to suddenly turn around and have this incredibly sort of Eurosceptic, very hard line on things, it just, it didn't strike me as, as credible. And, in, and when I was speaking to him, he was much more convincing when he was talking about how good the EU was, how I, I, could, I could sense that his heart was in it when he was saying, um, mm. 
the EU is great. We need to we need more cooperation between countries. This is the way the challenges of the 21st century are going to be addressed. The mutualized debt that was issued by EU countries last year, the 750 billion uh, euro recovery fund, that's great. We need more of that kind of thing. That's what struck me as convincing when he was speaking. I, I, I did not have the sense that I was sitting in front of someone who believed in his heart of hearts that Brussels has, has gone too far and we need to rebalance mm. and it's taken too much sovereignty around, away from the member states. I, it, it just didn't strike me as... So he's as, as he's a Europhile trying to dress up as a, as a nationalist. Yeah, because I suppose that's where he's perceived the centre of gravity to be, the, the votes to yeah. be, both for this the nomination for his party and later for, for the general election too. He's made the calculation. And, and another thing I think you could probably say is that he spent a very long time at the top of European politics, which is, as, as we know in the UK and, and elsewhere, you don't tend to get a lot of visibility f- among kind of national electorates for that. And so he kind of had to reintroduce himself as a national politician, which he was before, but then he spent almost a decade as not a national politician working at the top of the EU, obviously doing this very kind of technocratic, technical uh, work, right. negotiating with the UK, where often actually he was making headlines in the UK and not in the EU. So, so I think he's taken these very harsh measures as a way to introduce himself and get people talking about him. And with that, let's let Barnier reintroduce himself. Mr. Barnier, thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning. We'll get on to your presidential campaign, but first I'd like to ask you about your book, which is an account of uh, your time negotiating for the EU with the UK. You title the introduction to your book, A Warning. Why was the Brexit vote a warning to France and to the EU? For such a country, a great country like UK, leaving the EU the first time, leaving the single market, leaving the customer union is, is not a small event. It's a, a very historical and, and very serious event. And so uh, for the EU, it's clearly a failure. The Brexit is a divorce. As any divorce, it still has many consequences in many fields and for so many people. But at the political level, we, we need to, to draw the lessons of this, this event. Why 52% of the British citizens voted against Brussels, against EU, to leave the EU? It's my responsibility, as I wrote in the first chapter, a warning, to say to the people of France, but also the other people in Europe, uh, you have to understand, you have to listen, and we will have to answer to this question asked by the British people, because it's too late for the British people, but it's not too late for us. <laughs> and so you pepper your book with references to French politics. You muse that British voters who chose to leave the EU were doing so for similar reasons to French voters who go for Marine Le Pen or for Jean-Luc Mélenchon. What would be the consequences of continuing to ignore these voters? Now, precisely, I don't want they will continue to ignore this, what I call the popular feeling the social anger expressed by the British people in some regions against the lack of public services, against the lack of industry or jobs of no future. Once again, we have to understand, to listen and to answer. All the answers are not in Brussels, to be frank. And we have begun to draw the lesson and to change what must be changed. But a part of the answer are in Paris or in Berlin or in Rome, uh, part of the answer are also at the regional or local level as far as the transportation and the, the social services are concerned. So we have everywhere to draw the lesson why British people vote against Brussels. I think there is obviously domestic and 
more British reasons, but there are also common reasons in many regions of Europe. And so it is my point. I've decided to draw the lesson for France. How are you listening to these voters? What would you, as president of France, change and make sure that these voters are not ignored anymore? What concerns me is what the French people think today. Huh? And also I listen everywhere to the popular feeling. But three points in, in my country, clearly uh, the lack of jobs in some regions. We have to bring back a future everywhere in what we call in France the territories, the regions, the, the departments and to have a new industrial ambition. In France, as in England, we have abandoned part of our industry. Germany, uh, Italy, uh, Sweden didn't do the same. Huh? So we have to rebuild this industrial ambition. We have to be careful about the public services, transport and social care. And we have to put in place a more efficient policy for migrations. So these are the three key points where we need to draw some lessons to the Brexit and to change what needs to be changed in Brussels, also in, in Paris. We'll come on to the question of migration, but before we do, one of the key themes through your book is the difficulty of negotiating around Northern Ireland and the tensions between the UK and the EU over how to maintain an open border and the integrity of the single market and so on. It's now almost a year since the Brexit that you negotiated took effect. In that time, we've seen continued tensions between the UK and EU, in particular over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Some British politicians are calling for the protocol to be changed or to be abandoned. How do you respond to that? It was clearly uh, the most difficult issue in this negotiation, because um, what is at stake in Northern Ireland and Ireland is not about trade or goods or technical issue, it's about peace. How to maintain this peace which is fragile since uh, 20 years and since uh, the signature of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement. So I put this issue in the very front line of the negotiation from the day one to the last day. And we worked a lot with Theresa May first and after with Boris Johnson and his team to find a solution. And we found a solution, which is, I know, complex, sensitive, difficult. But because the situation is complex, sensitive and difficult. And we found a solution with Boris Johnson, not against him or not without him. He knew clearly what he signed at that time. Huh? The House of Commons ratified this, this treaty. So there is no surprise. And now my wish is just to say, be careful. Be careful. We have to implement this protocol. We can find solution, operational solution, answer, technical solutions. I know that the Vice President of the Commission, Marosevkovic, is, is a wise man, is competent, is working find these solutions. But on the other side, we need the UK government to respect the signature. It's a question of credibility and responsibility. And so uh, everybody has to be careful. Everybody is looking what could happen in, in Ireland, in Dublin, in Belfast, in London, in Brussels, in Paris, in Washington too. So. Uh, this situation is very serious and I hope sincerely that uh, everybody will be uh, in good faith.
able to respect what has been negotiated and signed. Have you seen the UK act in good faith over the past year? I just want to say I hope everybody will continue to work in good faith. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get on to your presidential run. You are running for president of France. You're running for the nomination of the centre-right Republican Party. But ironically, you're probably better known in Britain than you are on the continent, or at least were for a long time, because you regularly made headlines here in a way that you didn't in the EU. So why did you decide to make the shift from European to French politics, or back to French politics? I don't know if it's true, but I'm not running in England. I'm running in my country. I've always been a French politician, elected by the people, and uh, I want to respect the tradition, which is important for me, not to critique and not to make any comment about the French politics abroad. But I just want to say that I just want to be useful to my country. It is the, the, the mission of a politician to be useful. Huh? Well, nonetheless, I think many people in the UK would be interested to know why you've made the shift and um, how, how your ideas have, have changed and um, how they influenced you as a negotiator. I've been involved in politics for a long time at the regional level, four times in the French government, two times as commissioner, and finally as a European negotiator for the Brexit. And uh, the people around me, my friends, many elected people, many citizens, think that this experience, capacity to put the people together, to work together, respecting everybody and to succeed together can be useful to my country. This is just the only reason. Huh? Christian Jacob, the head of the Republican Party, has said that Éric Zemmour, who is viewed as close to declaring his candidacy for president, is neither racist nor far-right. Should Zemmour be permitted to seek the nomination of the Republican Party? Are his politics compatible with your parties? No way. I have nothing to do with Zemmour. Huh? We have not the same feeling, we have not the same conviction, we have not the same history. 
should he be permitted to run for the nomination of the Republican just, Party? Uh, just answer to your question, no way. No. And you've pledged to abide by the results of... But my point is not to answer or to comment or to lose time speaking about the others. My, my point as a French uh, politician running for the French presidency is to look at the problem, the concerns, the hopes of the people of my country and to, to address these problems and to address these concerns, not speaking about the others. No? You argue throughout your book that the challenges of the 21st century, such as terrorism and climate change, cannot be addressed by individual countries. And this is a theme that runs throughout your book and you talk about how in the modern world that we face, countries are stronger as they pull their sovereignty, as they pull their powers. You have called for a rebalancing of powers between the national and European levels. How should Europe change, in your view? And should this be done via some unilateral actions which you've proposed or via changes to the way Europe functions and the structures of Europe? Just let me make two or three points. Number one, I'm not a federalist. I'm a Gaullist and European. And for me, the European project is about pooling the nations of Europe, pooling, not merging, respecting the people, their traditions, their culture, their languages. It's the reason why uh, this project is so difficult, because pooling means that we have to respect the national identities. But we succeed to build this project for the 60 last years, including uh, with a great contribution of the UK. Number two, it's a reality that to face successfully the, the big challenge in the world, we need to be together, just to have the correct weight in the world, to be respected by the China or the United States. I remember a few years ago uh, a publication of uh, Mr. Cameron, your former Prime Minister, supporting what I did at that time as a European Commissioner for the single market. And in this document, I remember a slide with the top 10 in the world, the economic top 10, every 10 years. Today, or 10 years ago, they were still in this top 10 for European countries. Germany, UK, France, and Italy. And every 10 years, until 2050, one of the four is excluded, including UK. And at the end, 2050, only Germany uh, remain as the number 10 or number 9. I don't want my country to uh, be excluded of this, of this slide. I don't want my country to be a spectator of uh, its own destiny. If we want to be at the table, we need to be together, supported by the single market, which is the main reason why the President Biden, the Chinese President, respect us. It's clearly the, the single market as an ecosystem at the level of the continent of Europe. So, uh, this is the reason of, of the title of this book, eh? Diary, but also The Great Illusion. Mm -hmm. If we have to be realistic and tell the truth, we need to be together, to be at the table with China, Russia, uh, the States, India, and, and the others. We need to have these this strengths together. I understand why you're a passionate European and no one would doubt your, your commitment to Europe and your, your belief in a united Europe. My question was more about the specifics of what you would like to see 
change in the EU and how you would change that. You've talked a lot in kind of generalities about the need for Europe to change here and, and elsewhere, but what specifically would you would you change? How would you change Europe? Two or three points linked to the what I call the lesson of Brexit. For instance, less naivety in our trade relations. And the key point is reciprocity in our trade relations. Number two, we need to know, speaking about industry or the strategic sector, who is buying what in Europe. Number three, we need to invest together, as we did through the new fund created linked to the COVID crisis. For the first time, we have decided to invest in common 7.500 billions to invest in the future of Europe, to invest in the key strategic sectors, to invest against the climate change. And also, last point for me is to build a common migration policy. So this is the four key points where we have to to act together and at the right level to act. What is not working about migration policy in the European Union at the moment? Because we have not yet the same national policies for asylum, for the visas, and we have not yet the right implementation of the external borders. That means that Jean-Claude Juncker was right when he proposed, and it is just now to be implemented, a common force 10,000 border guards at the European level to help each and every country to control its border, which are at the same time our border. So are you proposing a common European migration policy or should this be done at the member state level? The migration policy is a shared policy between Europe and the national level, which doesn't work. So we have to improve the two levels together. You spoke a few minutes ago about your desire for France not to be a spectator in its own fate. Not only France, the other European countries. And the rest of Europe. There's been a, an illustration of France not being able to take full responsibility for its own fate in the past few weeks, with in particular issues like the US withdrawal from Afghanistan and the AUKUS treaty between the UK, Australia and, and the US, which saw France marginalised and the contract of the century uh, lost. How, how do you respond to these events? Do they show a need for greater autonomy in European defence? And if, if they do, should that come at the European level or should it come at the national level? I think for a long time that what the Europeans does not do for themselves, it's difficult to imagine that somebody else will, will do at their place. And what happened in Afghanistan, where the US, in a very unilateral manner, decided to withdraw. Just re recall and remember that France has withdrew itself from Afghanistan nine, nine years ago. Huh? I don't want to give lessons. I just speak about the manner, the behavior. And it was clearly a very unilateral behavior. Understood like that, including in UK. The, the fact that the, this historical contract in Australia has been cancelled in the such a manner is another point, but also serious. I don't want to come back on this uh, condition, this contract, and perhaps some mistake on the French side. I just want to say that an alliance needs trust, needs confidence. And it wasn't the case in that story. And more than that, I think that islands 
does not mean allegiance. You have always to think about in policy, in politics, that uh, the future must not be sacrificed to the present. Eh? So I just recommend to the UK and also to the US, who are our allies, to be careful and to take into account the necessity for us to work together in the future, in the medium and long term. And to work together efficiently uh, in medium and long term, we need trust between us. And this trust has been fragilized. Is there still the ability to trust the, the US and, and the UK? We have to rebuild the trust. The SPD's Olaf Scholz is likely to be the next German Chancellor. You've spoken of, the, of your desire to rebalance relations between France and Germany at the European level. How would you work with Germany as president of France? If you come in my office, we will see uh, on the wall a photograph which is very important for me, the check hand between the Gaulle and Adenauer, 63, the Treaty of Elysee. And I become Gaullist and European at the same time because of this photograph, because of this check hand between these two giants of European policy, the Chancellor of Germany and, uh, and the French president at that time. So I think since this time that Franco-German cooperation is a necessity. And it is clearly the line of each and every French president since de Gaulle in 58, the beginning of uh, the European project. The European project has this foundation of the Franco-German reconciliation plus the four other countries working together at the very beginning. So I think this cooperation is a necessity, but more and more necessary, less and less sufficient. Each and every country in the EU has its own added value. There are many other great countries, Spain, Italy, Poland, and once again, each country, even the smallest, have added value, have an history, have a culture, have a a situation which can be useful for the others. Everyone for all. It is my line for Europe, everyone for all. One last question. As you were walking around London, you may have seen queues at petrol stations. There is currently a fuel shortage in the UK, ascribed to a labour shortage in part because of the end of freedom of movement. Is this a consequence of the path that the UK chose to take in its negotiations with you? It's not a the consequence of the negotiation is the consequence of the Brexit. The Brexit have, and I always say that in the same terms for four years in each and every press conference in Brussels or in London, mechanical consequences, leaving the single market as huge and many, many consequences at a human, social, economic, financial, technical level. And one of the consequences, mechanical consequences, uh, leaving the single market is to end the freedom of movement and to rebuild uh, non-tariff barriers between us. It is the consequences, the choice for the UK to leave the EU. But if you speak about the shortage, I don't want to give lessons. Huh? Uh, there is many problems everywhere. Uh, we have many problems linked to the COVID crisis everywhere. We have many problems of uh, raw materials everywhere. But in addition to this problem, you have the concerns of the Brexit. It's, it's truth, and we have to tell the truth. Huh? So the fuel shortages that the UK is seeing were consequences? 
there is not a single reason. I just said COVID, raw material shortage everywhere, the price of energy also. It's the same problem for, for all the countries, but there is, in addition of these problems, the consequence of the Brexit. Mr. Barnier, thank you for your time. Thank you, to you. So that was Ido and Barnier. And now normally here at the end of the podcast, we ask our guests what they will be looking to in the week ahead. But we're not going to do that this week. One, because our guest is kind of Barnier and he's not here. And two, because I'm going to flip the script and ask Ido. Ido, you sort of outlined where these various French presidential campaigns are at the moment. What will you be looking toward? Because you're, you're going to be covering the French election for us on newstatesman.com. What will you have your eye out for in French politics? I will be keeping an eye out uh, for what happens with Zemmour's eventual bid. So as you will have heard in the interview, I asked Barnier, should Zemmour be permitted to run for the nomination of his Republican Party for the same nomination that Barnier is trying to win? And um, he said very clearly, no way, no, he doesn't think so. And the reason I asked that was that there has been increasing speculation in the past few days that Zemmour is going to try and win the nomination of the centre-right Republican Party as a kind of almost outsider entryist hijacking. Emily, you probably see echoes of 2015, 2016. And- One never wants to be like, oh, everything is just like the United States and this is Trump. But actually there is, it's haunting. Yeah, well, exactly. Although in recent days, the leadership of the Republicans seems to have taken a slightly harsher line. And um, Christian Jacob, who initially said that Zimbabwe was not racist or far right, now is saying, actually, no, he doesn't belong to our, to our what he calls political family. And so he won't run. But precisely the mechanisms by which Zimbabwe eventually decides to run for president are still very, very unclear. Is he going to do it as an independent? Is he going to seek the nomination of the Republican Party? How is he going to do it? Is he going to just go with it alone or seek to build alliances? We, we really don't know. It's a virtual certainty that he's going to do it, but we don't know how he's going to do it. So I'll be keeping an eye out for that. What will you be looking at? I'm just going to very quickly flag that Biden's domestic agenda is maybe falling apart. His, you know, Restoring America plan is in Congress in the form of two different bills. One is a bill that had bipartisan support in the Senate, and that's kind of a straight infrastructure bill. And then there's this other more ambitious bill that is worth $3.5 trillion that's meant to expand like healthcare, childcare, education, and also sort of the greening of America's infrastructure. So essentially, House progressives have long said that they are not going to back the infrastructure bill unless the Senate passes the larger bill through something called reconciliation, which it's not worth really getting into in detail. But basically what you need to know is that that would require just 50 Senate votes, not the normal 60, because it's it's like saying that it's a budget thing. However, there are two Democratic senators who are not playing ball. One is Joe Manchin, who is saying, oh, no, we need to whittle down the reconciliation bill. And so Joe Manchin's from West Virginia, so you can kind of say, okay, it's West Virginia. He's He managed to win the seat as a Democrat. All right. The other one is Democratic Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema, who is not articulating what it is she wants. Like normally when you hold up something, you say, oh, I'm trying to extract this concession from the other side. But according to everyone, Sinema appears to just be doing this for the love of the game at the moment. So will Biden's domestic agenda fall for Sinema's love of the game? We'll find out. So that brings us to the end of this very special episode of World Review. If you enjoyed it, you know what to do. You like, you subscribe, you leave a review, you tell your friends and your haters. 
and sign up for free to the World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next week. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.